Folks, welcome to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City. And I'm so honored to have my good friend in here, Jim Eddy. Of course, if you hear that last name, the first thing you think about is food uh, with my good friend, Jim Eddy. And Jim, uh, so wonderful to have you. And thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. Uh, it's our pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, Absolutely. You, you know, let's go back. Let's go back to Jim Eddy as a young child and, you know, mom and dad and the whole thing. Give us a little bit of the background of how all this got started for you. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know where to start. I, it, uh, as far as the food business goes, uh, I always wanted to be with the family. And growing up, Dad and his two brothers were partners, and they started out on the plaza with J.C. Nichols, and he wanted a bowling alley on the plaza. And he came to the brothers, and he said, would you be interested in putting a bowling alley down here? And they said, well, (laughs) sure. So they shook hands, and he built the building, 32 lanes, Plaza Bowl, opened in 1940 on a handshake, and they signed the lease after it was open. Of course, back in those days, your word was your bond, was good as gold, a handshake sufficed. Today, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you got to have 80 lawyers. But <laughs> the bowling alley became a tremendous success on account of World War II. It broke out, of course, December 7, 1941. And bowling establishments in cities wherever there was a war plant was decreed by the government essential to the war effort. And you had to stay open 24 hours a day. Oh, gosh. And so we had several war plants here in Kansas City. The General Motors plant was taken over, and I think the Ford plant. And so... It operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and anyone that worked there couldn't participate in in the regular Army or Air Force or so on. They had to remain in those jobs, and they were considered part of the war effort. Mm -hmm. So the Plaza Bowl became, unfortunately, World War II wasn't a happy thing, but for the Plaza Bowl, it became a gold mine operated 24 hours a day, had leagues. People get off work at 11 o'clock at night, and that was their 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's how we got into restaurant business because the bowl had a coffee shop and a cocktail lounge in it, and it was the first endeavor for the Eddie brothers. So and that was your first experience with food? Yes. With the Eddie brothers? So My you father were more... and his two brothers, the founders of the Right. Of the well, family. your father and two brothers, what were they in before? Were they in... Just not bowling alleys, no, but no, they're in all they kinds just, of other all stuff. All kinds of just, you know, trying to make a living during gotcha. the Depression and coming up. But uh, they just got in, and they didn't know anything about restaurants. And they hired a fella. He was a great guy, Harry Rowe. And then he wound up, after the Eddie brothers learned how to run a restaurant, <laughs> Harry <laughs> opened up and had Rowe's restaurants. He had about four or five restaurants diner-type places, a couple of them downtown and around the city, and he was a fine guy, he and uh, uh, his wife, uh, Marjorie, and they were great friends of the family. But anyway, the Plaza Bowl just 
knocked them dead as far as bowling and food and the cocktail lounge. It went 24 hours a day until the war was over, and it was so successful, King Louis people, uh, learners, wanted to buy it. And they offered uh, the brothers a price they couldn't refuse. (laughs) (laughs) And so they sold out and started planning 13th and Baltimore. J.C. Nichols wanted to put it on the plaza where the Plaza 3 was, and there was a, if I remember correctly, a sunken garden, beer garden in that location. And they were going to move this guy, and at the last minute he refused to move, Mm -hmm. and he had the lease. So J.C. said to the brothers, I've got one piece of property I own downtown at 13th and Baltimore. He said, would you put this your restaurant down there? So they agreed, and that's how 13th and Baltimore came along. And so this is just then their second foray into it. Now yeah. they've really made a giant step up because now we're talking about we're talking about food. I mean, we're talking oh, about yeah. not really a serious food service food. and serious food mm-hmm. in a serious restaurant. Yeah. And then what else came along with the restaurant, oh, inside boy. the restaurant, at the same time? Well, 13th and Baltimore became a world-famous operation. Uh, accidentally got into the entertainment business a year after it opened. Uh, played different orchestras for the first year. They called them society orchestras. They played all over the country, in New York. And it was a Chicago. circuit. Yeah, right? so like a circuit. circuit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they saw Uncle George was in St. Louis, and he was staying at the Chase Hotel, and their orchestra there was Tony DePardo. This is 1950, and Eddie's opened February 1st, 1949. So he talked to Tony, and he said, we'd like to bring you to Kansas City. He said, well, you know what? He said he and his wife, Dodie, kind of wanted to move to Kansas City. He said, you got a job. So Tony was our house orchestra for 10 years until the Chiefs took him away. That's right. They put him in the end zone. (laughs) They did. And he was, Tony DePardo was... He was like closer than family, he and his family. Well, anyway, he was very successful there. And then we accidentally had an act come in, a musical act, and it wasn't just by accident. And it was uh, Bobby Peters and his musical maniacs. And they were (laughs) played at the Royal Hawaiian in, uh, in Hawaii. And they were very famous over there. So they came in with DePardo and did a few antics, and that's how we got into show business. So Associated Booking and MCA, Music Corporation of America, and William Morris Agencies, those were the three booking agencies in those days, said they heard about it and they said, you're going into show business. We're going to start booking acts in there for you. Wow. So the Eddie brothers said, okay. They didn't really know what the hell they were doing. But <laughs> they they, they haven't known what they've been doing since the beginning, but they're doing pretty well right yeah. out of the shoot here. So, <laughs> so. Key Wiz, they started out with a great comedian in those days, Myron Cohen, and he was hilarious and f- really fabulous. And then they had Helen Forrest, who was a big singer in the 40s, and uh, trying to think of the early ones, and it kept getting bigger and bigger names. And, you know, the your appetite increases and you want a better name sure and each act played two weeks they weren't one-nighters it was a two-week uh, gig and uh, Marilyn May sang with uh, with Tony for a while 
uh, until she went to the colony and became one of the greatest jazz singers in the world. Uh, and still is, still oh, works. Still is, and still going at 90-something. Yep. God bless her. Still yeah. kicking, yeah. as she says. Yeah, she sure is. She's great. Well, anyway, we started getting into big names, and uh, the rest is history. The place was there and just fabulous until the middle 60s. And downtown went to sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was, and the shopping centers opened. And television became a big thing, and entertainers could make more money in three minutes on Ed Sullivan on Sunday night than they could in the Copacabana in New York or the Eddies in Kansas City. So you couldn't get acts anymore. They didn't want to travel. Right, and Las Vegas started oh, to Vegas, kick off. And Vegas came. That's oh yeah, right. Vegas was the other. They could pay an act. We were paying five thousand a week to Vegas would pay them twenty thousand. Sure. Where are you going to go? <laughs> you going to yeah. go to Vegas? Or you can be on TV. The supper clubs all over America were gone. Yeah, that, that that's they when they died. Closed out. Now, totally. before we, we talk about moving on and mm-hmm. then, you know, rearranging your thinking about how are we going to continue in this business because we like being in the restaurant mm-hmm. business. Maybe this is done. But your father and your uncle seem to be very progressive mm-hmm. thinkers of and future thinkers of what is next. But before we go to what is next... You had the four lads. Go oh, four lads. You had uh, Stiller and Mira, and I think there's a great story about yeah. Ann Mira when she appeared at Eddie's at 13th in Baltimore. Tell that story a little bit and what happened in the aftermath. Do you remember when she was pregnant? Yes, she was pregnant with uh, Ben. Ben Stiller. <laughs> she was, in, I think, right after she left, yeah. she had, had had little Ben. Little Ben. But they were <laughs> a marvelous. Oh my gosh. They were tremendous. They were so inventive, and their comedy was brilliant. And the election was going on, uh, 1960 election, and they had all kinds of special material about Nixon and uh, Kennedy and, and all the you know all that kind of. It, it was just unbelievable, unbelievable the way uh, that act. And uh, I think Jerry just passed away. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, not too and long ago. He was a sweet guy, nicest guy in the world. Yeah, we played Nelson Eddy, for instance, no relation. He just blew the place away. Yeah. You, you couldn't get in the restaurant. You have another great story about Barbara Streisand. Oh, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> Heavens to Betsy, Barbara Streisand. Well, when she was just starting, uh, she was with, uh, let me think real quick which one of them. I think it was uh, MCA. With so, the agency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, they booked her. And they called up. And the thing was, if you made it in Kansas City, you could make it anywhere. It was a tough, Kansas City was a tough market for entertainment. A very conservative. Well, anyway, they said to Uncle George, George, we got this gal. And she sings like a Boyd. He was from Chicago, and every bird was Boyd. He says, she sings like a Boyd. We're going to make a big star out of her, and we'll give her to you now for 500 a week, and next year with options for 750 a week, and the third year for 1250 a week for two weeks. And she'll probably pay you a half million to get out of the third year of options. And Uncle George said, send me the pictures. So 
They, I know where this is going. They mailed him <laughs> photographs, and this is before she, bless her heart, had anything done with her hair, her face, her nose, or whatever. <laughs> she was unbelievably not handsome, if you will. <laughs> and Uncle George looked at this, and he said, no way. He said, this broad will run him out of here. <laughs> no one's going to come to see someone that looks this way. Oh, my he gosh. He said, George, we'll fix her up. Don't worry. She's got a voice. You've never heard a voice like this. And he that was the one big strikeout oh. he made. He Uncle George hit many home runs but with booking, but this one he struck out completely because she became the biggest star in the in the world. Yeah. And they got her looking good, they got her hair fixed and her makeup and when she finally got a pretty good name, she looked pretty good. Yeah, right. In that in that third year or even second year, she would have probably bought it out for yeah. a million, let alone a half a million back in those days. Another that great, was a lot of money. Yeah, another great story was Janice Page. We had her booked and she won the lead for Pajama Game. Right. She was Broadway. a Broadway actress. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, her agent called up said, if you would release her so she can do Pajama Game, whenever it breaks on Broadway, she will play your place first. Wow. And it'll be a big deal because she'll be a big star by the bigger star. And so we agreed. And sure enough, about three and a half, four years later, it was one of, the, at that time, longest running show on Broadway, mm -hmm. biggest hit that ever hit Broadway. Janice Page comes in and does three weeks, a three-week wow. gig, and she brings in four more musicians and six dancers. And she's doing her, breaking in her act that she's taken to Vegas, and we were paying her like nothing. And she went to Vegas at twenty five thousand a week, and Variety magazine had headlines that told all that. Uh, two inch headlines: Janice Page goes to Eddie's, Casey Moe to lose money and going to the Sands or wherever it was for twenty five thousand a week. Well, she broke her act in. We had to take the baby grand off the stage and put a spinet up there to make room, room for, for all everybody, the, the musicians. <laughs> and she put on a show that was unbelievable never forgetting every night i'd have to walk her up to the hotel she stayed at the continental hotel and uh, she didn't want to walk alone right and she went to kansas city athletic club every day and worked out she wow. was some kind of a gal unbelievable wow. lady right and you say the only regret you had and the only act that your dad and, and his brothers didn't have was sinatra yeah. He was the only one. You, 300 seats, you couldn't afford him. Right, yeah. right. Even back, well, even back then, he was uh, he was Outrageous. gotten so big. Oh, yeah. huge. Just unbelievable. But we had the crew cuts, the four lads, the four aces, Carmen Cavallaro. I mean, I don't know where to start or stop. Yeah. Everyone in the show business in those days, and they played all over the country, and, and they weren't one-nighters. Every they, Everywhere they worked were two-week gigs. Right, and it, you're talking about the Copa, Che uh, Paul's in uh, Chicago, I yeah. think, the Chase Club in yeah. St. Louis. Copa uh, Cabana. The Copa Cabana. And they all basically, as you said, that sort of 
restaurant entertainment business went out of business about mm -hmm. the mid '60s, yes. right? All over the country. Yeah, all over the they, country. They couldn't get the acts. They right. wouldn't travel. You know, that was a dog's life. Two weeks on the road. Oh yeah, definitely. The poor those poor entertainers. We had them on. <laughs> we were closed on Sunday, and ninety percent of them, we'd say, "You want to come to dinner Sunday at the house?" Or Uncle Jordan had my Uncle Sam. We took turns. The brothers did. And heck, over the years, we've had so many great entertainers on Sunday just having dinner with us. Right. And not even think twice about it. No. It was just a natural yeah. phenomenon oh, yeah. in your dining room. And, and they'd play the piano in the house and sing, you know, pay back a little entertainment for the dinner, I guess. But gosh, gosh it was, they were. They were magical days, magical. Okay, so at that point, the dinner theater type thing is done, mm -hmm. uh, at least for a period of time. Mm -hmm. So what did uh, th did your dad and the brothers morph into? And then when did you start to get involved in, in everything? Well, I luckily, uh, all through high school, uh, I worked down at the place. And that's when I just said, I'm not going anywhere. This, I'm going to be in this business with the family. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't even want to go to school, college. Where'd you go to high school? I went to high school at Shawnee Mission, the original. The original Shawnee Mission in, High School, in yes. Uh -huh. Right. But uh, anyway, uh, I went there and then I graduated from uh, Missouri University uh, in 1959. And I got out on time. Boy, I wanted to get out on time. I didn't want to spend any more time <laughs> in school. And uh, But when the... Uh, Closed down 13th in Baltimore uh, and tried to run it. We had a couple more years on the lease, and we tried two or three different things in there. And it, downtown was so dead, we just paid the rent until the lease was up. Right. And uh, so the brothers took their sons, each of the three brothers. Uncle Sam's kids were too young, but Uncle George's uh, had the oldest sons and then Dad. And we all... Or the family, the brothers, amicably said it's time to separate. And Uncle Sam got in the real estate business, and Uncle George and his sons uh, went and took over. We were running the Prom Sheraton Hotel downtown, mm -hmm. uh, at Sixth and Main, and the food operations in there, and the uh, uh, banquet rooms. So they took that, and Dad wow. and uh, Ned and I, my brother. Uh, started the Loafensteins, the delis, and did that for, I don't know, 15 or 18 years and got into the catering business. The Loafensteins just kind of morphed into it because it was deli and it got catering and carry out. And right. It, it morphed into, we got in the catering business. Right, but but the delicatessens were huge back then, oh, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, they, they were wonderful. Right, and what. we've sort of lost those as well. I mean... Some have come back in, un, under mm -hmm. different names. Um, you know, what the, there was a New York deli for a while, and yeah. there were, you know, some of the other delis that, that they're, they're slipping my mind. But even the delicatessen, just as a delicatessen has sort of disappeared, because a lot of it now is in grocery stores mm -hmm. where you can go back and get a sandwich made back at the deli counter Which is of great. a grocery store. I yeah. love it. I do it yeah. at Sprouts all the time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you are. Yeah, but in, that, in those days, grocery stores didn't do that. They just mm -hmm. sold your... You know your frozen meats and your your uh, they sell sandwich meat and 
a loaf of bread or whatever and go home and make your own That's right. delicatessen sandwich. But the delis were, were just huge in those Tremendous. days. Yeah. Tremendous. And they sort of went to the wayside. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting, starting to uh, come back. a little bit of a comeback. Which but then you went to basically the catering business. Yeah. And it really took off. And I think the Eddie family, as you can tell from the two brothers and your dad, your, your two uncles and your dad, I mean, the Eddie family already had established their name in Kansas mm-hmm. City mm-hmm. about being people you can trust and count on mm-hmm. in each one of these businesses, even though they're not all in the food business anymore. Well, the, the catering just morphed into it. It was unbelievable the way it happened. And... In 1981, when interest rates were 21% and everybody was going broke, and we we were in all the shopping centers, Frank Morgan and Sherman Dreisus and two of the greatest developers in this man's town. There wouldn't be a college boulevard if it wasn't for those guys. They were tremendous. And we were in all their shopping centers, and the shopping centers were dead, D-E-A-D, dead. Nobody was everyone was going bankrupt. Right. And Sherman came up to us on a Friday and he said, I got some news. You may like it. You may not. He said, you've been stayed open when everyone else went broke and you paid your rent. He said, there's a guy that wants to buy you out all of your Wolfensteins. Really? He said, you're not going to get anything for him. But I will, and Frank will, release you from your long-term leases, and you can walk away with nothing if you want out, because I know it's very hard on you to stay here, and I've made a deal with him if you accept this What deal. year was this? This is 81. Okay. So we said, well, we're going to think of it. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> And God closed one door and opened another on the same day. Frank, this is unbelievable. Divine intervention, providence, or what? Jack Stedman called that afternoon. He was the president and general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs. Yes. And And Hunt Midwest. Yes. He Mm -hmm. said, we have been operating the Arrowhead Club and all the suites for 10 years. Thought we could do it. And Jimmy Schaff was doing it. was the GM. (laughs) And he said... We have lost so much money trying to be food operators. Would you guys consider talking to us? Let me think. Of, yes. <laughs> this is the same day that you the walk same away. Day. Walk away with nothing, and nothing. all of a sudden you walk right into something. Can you? Uh, this I is know. unheard of. Well, anyway, we had a meeting on Monday in Lamar's suite at his dining room table. And that what a. You thought you were in heaven, and <laughs> that's his, the owner's suite there at Arrowhead. Anyway, we made a deal, signed a lease, and we were there for 14 years, and it was just fantastic. And it, for Ned and Senior, Ned Junior, and Jim Eddy, that catapulted the three of us into the real heavy catering. Yeah, right. Because preparing the 81 suites and the press club and Lamar's for a game and getting, and it was, we perfected a system. You had to have your order in for what you wanted on game day by Wednesday. So we knew what we had to have in the kitchen, the provisions, the, how many tenderloins or how many of this, how many lobsters, 
We had a tremendous menu for them, and it worked like a clock. And all of a sudden, we started getting into the, besides Arrowhead, the large catering, and uh, it, it became where we were, what we were doing, and it uh, it was it was fun. Yeah, that and fun. yeah, I'll tell you a lot of stories. Now, this is uh, when I first got here. I didn't work on Sundays, okay, except when the Chiefs played at home mm-hmm. or maybe Royals were into a big series or whatever. I'd work on Sundays, but normally I work Monday through Friday. So Sunday, back in those days, a lot of the games were at noon, mm-hmm. okay. So they were over by three. Mm-hmm. or 3.30 or whatever, and I'd get done. I'd do the interviews in the locker room and do all that stuff, go outside, do my stand-ups or whatever. My photographer would take the stuff. He'd take it back to the station, and they'd get on the air, and I was done. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was done. So where'd I go? I went right up to the Arrowhead Club, mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how many times I think I've closed the Arrowhead Club down back in those well, sure. days. Uh, because you just didn't, you really did take care of the media after the games were over, even though back in those days, and I, I'm not sure how long it went, but you could, the media could get, well, it wasn't the press box, so it was it was the Arrowhead Club. But even at the press box, you could basically get alcohol if you wanted. You could mm-hmm. have a beer, you could have mm-hmm. a drink, whatever. But most of us waited until we got to the Arrowhead Club after the game was over. And you were always so gracious. Everyone was so gracious. Oh, yeah, come on in, sit yeah. down, have a drink at the bar and do oh, the whole thing. It was and great. And the bartenders, we inherited the bartenders right. when we signed the lease. And these were guys that were all executives in other businesses. Right. And so bartending wasn't their main gig. And they were working, all of them were Catholic boys, to make enough money extra to put their kids through either Rockhurst or Notre Dame or St. Teresa's. Right. They were the greatest. Rocco Stacy, I'm trying to remember all their names. Jimmy <laughs> Anzalone. Uh, gee, they were... Uh, I'll get I'll get him in a minute. And one of the guys, uh, Rodriguez, he was for TWA. He was the guy that scheduled airplanes when an airplane had an engine problem and it couldn't take off, and they needed to. And he explained to us one day how complicated that was all over the world, and it was his job to move airplanes so the flight could be made. Right, he was almost like through. a dispatcher. Oh yeah, a taxi cab dispatcher, but for airplanes, right? But but he worked at Arrowhead on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> that was his day off from dispatching. Right. And how, where do you meet men like that? I, I mean, they were just phenomenal. Salt of the earth people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was no doubt. Absolutely. Okay, so you get you're there for thirteen. How, how did that end? It, that almost seems like it's in that Carl Peterson, Marty Schottenheimer yeah. type. Uh, regime, things started to change their head about the way they were going yeah. to use their space. Well, we were there. Uh, we were there 14 years. In the eighth year, which would have been uh, 89, 89. I think that's the year it, it was. Uh, Carl Peterson was hired as general manager. And so, first day. He came in. He fired George Toma. Now, go figure that one out. <laughs> and then he fired everyone in the offices. He was cleaning house. He wanted yeah. to bring in his own regime. Oh, his yeah. own machine. Cause, mm-hmm. And so he called us in, and he said, this will be your last season. He said, I'm bringing my people in from Chicago, Levy Brothers. He was a partner with them, had investments with them. And they're a big stadium operator. Yes, they very, were. I, very I know good. the Levy Brothers, yeah. Very good. And... We said, really? Uh, 
I think you better check legal. We've got eight years left on our lease. And he said, what? And he picked up the phone. He says, give me legal. He said, how much longer do the Eddies have on their lease? Or do they have a lease? About three minutes later, legal said yes. And they're here until 1994. Well, that was 80. Uh, yeah, 95, 95 was when you left. Yeah, yeah. that's the lease was up in ninety end of the season in 95. Okay. He said, take that back. He said, you're here till your lease is up. <laughs> he said, and I want you to know that don't have any hard feelings. Right. He said, I'm just bringing my people in. That's and, right. But you're here, and your reputation's great. And uh, we had a great relationship. Carl was brilliant. Right. Great operator. Well, when our lease was up, there was a brouhaha, and it got all kinds of publicity, and the Arrowhead Club members and oh, didn't want us to leave. And right. they said, why are you bringing someone in from out of town when we have local operators here who have been very successful? And Carl said, well, that's just what I'm going to do. And they had three or four meetings, public meetings, and they did them at the, what, one of the hotel's ballrooms. Got all kinds of publicity. It was good for us, bad for him, because <laughs> the local people wanted us to stay because we were local. But it turned out uh, he had the bottom, the whole card. And we still remained friends. We did all mm -hmm. of his personal catering, and I think when, we, when he got married. I think he did his wedding. Yeah, we did mm -hmm. his wedding. So he, he was. I saw you there, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Carl was a <laughs> great guy. And I'll tell you what, he made the Chiefs. I mean, they didn't have any great football teams. For a while, but he turned that place into an exciting venue. All of the stuff they did in the stadium was phenomenal. Yeah, and outside the stadium too. And that was Tim Conley, a little bit. Yeah. Remember Tim yeah. Conley, oh, yeah. right? He was the one really that that brought in the tailgating. He yeah. was the one that said, "Let's put corporate tents outside. And let's have a band in one of the tents, and let's give all the corporations they want, and we'll put them on the out." The, the outskirts grass there on the yeah. driveway beyond the the, fun, the last driveway out there. We're going to put all the tents out there and let these people come in, bring all their customers, and let them, which is amazing when you think about it, eat food outside of the stadium concessions yeah. where really the Chiefs weren't going to make any money off of that. They were going to make money from renting the space mm -hmm. or the tent, but they weren't going to really make any money from the concessions inside because everybody was tailgating outside, and that concept was unique. Yes. Oh, uh, I think they started the real tailgating all over the country. When people would see Kansas, the other teams, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean— you could smell barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could be landing a plane at KCI if you flew over Arrowhead. The wind was right. You could smell the barbecue in the airplane. You pick it as up as you were yeah. landing. Yeah, I absolutely. believe it. Yeah, they and, uh, and boy, I'll tell you, some of those days back then, there wouldn't be ten thousand people in oh, the stadium. I we remember have more those people days. in the suites than they'd have in the stadium. <laughs> Because if you owned a suite, you were going to come and entertain in it no matter what. Right. And you were inside when it was 10, beliefs, below, 10 degrees below zero. I, I, and I remember Ned and uh, who was it? It's your brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Springer. Yeah, he was the PR director. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
during the third quarter, they'd meet over there, and, and Stedman would come down, and he'd say, all right, <clears throat> we're going to announce the attendance. <laughs> there, there were 10,000 people in the stadium. There might have been 10,000 or 15,000 no-shows. Oh, absolutely. And they'd put the no-shows with the yeah. actual attendance. <laughs> Yeah. And announce it because it was so bad in those yeah, right. days. We saw we'd be sitting in the press box. I remember. I think it was the day Jack Rudney retired. Dude. Yeah, ex great center. He's in the Hall of Fame, Chiefs Hall of Honor, and the Ring of Fame there at Arrowhead. He was retiring, and they had uh, they had a ceremony for him. It had rained the night before, and I think it was four degrees below zero outside. And all the seats in the stadium froze oh, in yeah. the upright position. So even if you had a ticket to come and sit. You, you couldn't you, break them down. You, you needed a, an axe and a chisel to get the chair down. So people, there was no one, absolutely no one in the stadium. I'll tell you another funny story about the stadium. <laughs> there was no insulation in the glass and the suites. Uh-huh. It, and on those days, it, they'd ice up. <laughs> you couldn't, <laughs> couldn't see through the glass. <laughs> but the funny thing was, you know, we used the Arrowhead Club all year long for sales meetings and all kinds of stuff. And it seated 350 people. Right. So you'd have a maybe a seminar, or sales meeting for IBM or all yeah, the big you'd companies. You'd have big charity events there. Oh, yeah. You had the Chiefs Fashion Show yeah. was in there. You had big Chiefs auctions yeah. in there well, and all in the, kinds in, of stuff. In the daytime, when it was 10 degrees outside and the big sales meetings going on, people would sit there, and after they're sitting there for two or three hours, their feet are freezing. They don't know why it's freezing. Well, there was no insulation in the in the floors or anything, and all that cold air has got the concrete like ice. If we spill water in the storeroom on those days, it would freeze. It'd be an ice skating rink. <laughs> I mean, it was the damnedest thing. The stadium had zero insulation anywhere, wow. and single pane glass on all the. Sweet windows. Wow. They had to change all that, and they had to blow. Yeah, the when they did the renovations yeah. and the whole thing. Yeah, but it was funny. I tell you, yeah. it was hilarious. They were the good old days, but oh. that's it. Okay, so your door closes at the Arrowhead yeah. Club. You already have a reputation. The Eddie family has yeah. this reputation in all co- facets of Kansas City life yeah. at, at this point. Well, what door opened for you at that point? Well, we would, had been at Bartle. Okay, for a while you'd already yeah, been. Bartle you had, were their caterer. Yeah, yeah, and we we're twenty years there, and they had no kitchen. We used to take from our commissary when we'd feed up there. And sometimes we'd do convention, three or 4,000 people, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Most of them would be buffets, but some of them wanted sit-down dinners. And we'd have to go and set up a kitchen on the loading dock and have, have grills out there and all kinds of things uh, to do it. And finally, the city said, you know what? We need to put a kitchen down here. And we designed the kitchen that's in there now. And it was a first-class kitchen. Had dishwasher. The dishwashing machine was bigger than this whole office. I mean, it was 20, 30 feet long. Uh, And we no longer had to... We had to take the dishes up there and then bring them back to our commissary to wash them. I mean, that was a, a real job, but once we had a kitchen up there, it changed everything, and mm-hmm. Bartle Hall started to become a real uh, 
competitor to Chicago for medium-sized conventions. Kansas City was coming back to be a convention city, yeah, we, like it used to be. Right, we still needed more hotel space oh, at yeah, that time. Oh, yeah, we never yeah. had the hotel space <clears throat> at that time. Crown Center was great, but they weren't downtown. They right. Hotels need to be downtown next to the convention center. Well, anyway, the catering just mushroomed uh, for us at Bartle, and off-premise catering became a big thing, and we bought a few more trucks, and we were able to do off-premise and offices and homes and all that white glove or buffets or whatever. Yeah, you did whatever weddings. People you wanted. Did, yeah, yeah, weddings. Right. And uh, it just what we did. Right. And from that point on, when did you get into fast food? Okay. My wife is from New Orleans. Okay. And I got acquainted with Popeye's. <laughs> My father-in-law called in about 19... 19- 50, I don't know. No, no, not in the 50s, in the 70s. Popeye's started in 72. That's when it was, 1972. And about six blocks from their house, uh, they live right by Lake Pontchartrain, but there's a shopping center with a KFC. And back in those days, KFC, you just walked up to a window. They didn't have have any sit-down or indoor stuff. They started out that way. And Al Copeland invented Popeyes. As a competitor. As a competitor. Mm-hmm. And how did he name it Popeyes? He was watching the French Connection one night. And Popeye, Popeye Doyle. That's where he got He said, that's <laughs> the name. Me. You think it's for Popeye the Sailor Man. Yeah. It was Popeye, Popeye Doyle. Doyle. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> he puts in a little walk-up in something that was used to be there next door to KFC. And he was just as ornery as he could be, Al Copeland was. He was brilliant. And so he said, I'm going to go next door to the colonel and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, my father-in-law called me, and we were still had delis in those days, they had Lofensteins, and he said, you got to come down here and see this. This guy named Copeland puts in a place called Popeye's next door to the colonel. The colonel's empty, and they're lined up around the block to <laughs> get this spicy and mild right. chicken. And he said... Unbelievable! Isn't that what generated uh, Kentucky Fried to do the spicy oh, I'm sure. chicken? They had to compete, right? Al Copeland put spicy foods on the map. He's the father of anything you eat spicy today. It started with Al Copeland. Wow. He had on his uh, food team, Paul Prudhomme, for instance. Remember Paul? The name the, sounds Kay familiar. K. Paul's in New Orleans. Okay. And he's the guy that invented uh, blackened. Blackened uh, Cajun chicken, Cajun mm-hmm. chicken, and blackened fish. Uh, two or three of the other. One of the Brennans was on his food team. Uh, I'm trying to think of the yeah, Brennans was the the famous restaurant. Yeah, in New Brennans Orleans. and Commander's <laughs> Palace. That's right. So anyway, he had the best food people in New Orleans on his development team, and they invented the spicy chicken. And then years later, I. Uh, was in New Orleans with my wife and kids, and we're at Lakeside Shopping Center, and Popeye's had a in their food court. So Frida and the kids are shopping, and I'm sitting there. I said, I'm going to go get my Popeye's fix. So I went, and the gal said, why don't you try our new biscuit? I said, oh, no, no, no. It'll be a Parker House roll like KFC, which you can't eat. She said, no, really, try it. We make them here. I said, I don't believe you. (laughs) 
being a restaurateur. I'm, right. You know, in the restaurant you business. You can't do that. In the restaurant business, if you take one idea, it's stealing. If you take ten, it's research. So I said, all right, I'll do some research. So she took me back in the kitchen, and there they're rolling these biscuits out. I mean, from scratch. And that's a process. They had big mixers and all the whole. So she said, now come up here and taste one of these, sir, and see what you think. I tasted it, and I said, holy mackerel. This is like a Sara Lee or something. It's, it was melted in your mouth. So I came back to Kansas City, and I told my father and my brother, and I said, we're going to have to look into this. This Their chicken and everything, it's unbelievable. So another year passes by, and we keep thinking about it. And we finally decide I'm going to go down there and meet with Bill Copeland. Right. Had they been franchising at that point? Yes. Popeyes had, had been. They had but about, they hadn't anything here, right? No. Correct? They had nothing about 200 here. franchises in the South. Gotcha. So anyway, I go and meet with him, and he said, Kansas City is available. And we got real friendly, and he had already done a research check, and he said, your family's been in the food mm-hmm. business, so you guys will approve you right now because we know that you'll be fine because you're restaurateurs. And so he gives us the green light. So Monday morning we go meet with our banker, John Sullivan, Roland Park Bank. <laughs> Dear J- what a great guy. <laughs> so we're sitting there. And we tell him we want to try something new and to buy the whole territory the five county territory he wants 65,000 bucks to buy the territory that was and it? become exclusive <laughs> wow so and then we're going to need money to put in the restaurant he said well what the why would you want to do that and he was giving us the run around now and he said all right i'm going to tell you a story he said my buddy bernie riser who had the uh, can't think of the name in Kansas City, Kansas, the big bank over there, right on Minnesota Avenue. He said he and I were supposed to be in New Orleans for a banker's convention this weekend, and I couldn't go. Bernie went, and we were going to have dinner with our families on Sunday at my house, and John lived in that house. He's still on the southwest traffic way. He would never li- move. He lived. Wow. He grew up in that house. It's mm-hmm. right there. Uh, at uh, 31st in the traffic way. Anyway, so Bernie calls me up. He says, I'll be at 5 o'clock, and he he and his wife will be at your house by probably 6 o'clock because it was still going to the municipal airport. It went out at KCI. So he said, don't fix dinner. He said, I'm going to surprise you. So he shows up, he and his wife, about 6 o'clock, and he's got all these big sacks. He said, what's the dinner? So he pulls out all this stuff, and we eat it, and it's the best food I've ever had in my life, and it's 10 hours old by now. We reheat it. And he said, how much money do you want? It was Popeye's <laughs> chicken and biscuits. I said, you've got to be kidding he said, write your ticket. That's the best stuff I've ever eaten wow. in my life. That's, That's a true awesome. story. I believe you. 
Unbelievable, John Sullivan. He said, write your ticket. Just incredible. And, and that's yeah. how we got in the chicken. The rest is history yeah. from that point. I mean, how lucky can you be? Yeah, absolutely. So what's Jim Eddy doing now? He's retired. <laughs> 58 years in the business. He has, he has Popeye's chicken in the freezer, and he's yeah. retired. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Just trying to take life easy and take care of my wife. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And let's talk about you and, and your longevity here in Kansas City and your families. There's, as you know, the name of this podcast is just something about Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Was there any time in your life that you lived here that you had thought that maybe we'll move or we'll, we'll move here, we'll move there or go somewhere else? Never. I just, this is home. Born and raised, four seasons. I love the four seasons. You get tired of this humidity. It'll be fall. It'll be glorious, wonderful. <laughs> then we'll get snow, and then we'll get the spring. You can't help but love it. The city's beautiful, and things are looking so good now. I think this new airport of ours is going to catapult us into right. a, a hub again, and people are going to be in and out of here. There's just things happening here that are exciting. We're alive again. And we've got the Royals. We've got the Chiefs. We've got a, a sporting, sporting KC. KC, which I don't go to that often, right. but I need to get. We more got the KC current. We got the women's current, team as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's and then you got Worlds of Fun. It's a major attraction. There's so much going on here, and you know, what's wrong with Kansas? City? Look at the people it's produced. Just think about it. All of the President from Independence, Truman, uh, Tom Watson, one of the greatest golfers. Let me think. George Brett, Lenny Dawson. Uh, Now we got football. We got Mahomes. We got a baseball team that's booming all of a sudden. I mean, what's not to like? This Kansas City is. I would never leave. Right. And in being a restaurateur with you, I, I know the bottom line for you is people. Oh, You've yeah. always been a people person. Mm-hmm. I think that is the basis and the foundation for everything here in Kansas City. Just some of those people you mentioned, plus just Kansas Cityans, period. Mm-hmm. Look at, for heaven's sakes, Ewing Kaufman. Mm-hmm. What a guy. My heavens. One of the great greatest men ever in the history of this town. I mean... We tried to pattern everything after him. I mean, he was just an icon. Yeah, he was an and innovator. The, the, the blocks, H&R Block, those guys. Who are leaving out? I yeah, mean, the Kempers. The Kempers. Yeah. Uh, There's all kinds of, of base families here in Kansas City that just made this tremendous. city what it is. And it is the people. And look at the Hellsbergs. Yes. Again. My heavens. Absolutely what they're doing. Gee whiz. <laughs> it's just, we could go on and on oh, about those. And a lot of those people and their families or their family history will be on this podcast. And that's, that's, that's tremendous. the reason that we really have kicked this off. Of course, Sarah. Was the uh, was the basis for all this, and you you know and love her. You know, oh my, my, my great wife, she is uh, absolutely. It was her idea. She dragged me kicking and screaming in here, but uh, well, you're since an that time, it's you're been an great. icon and institution here in the sports world. <laughs> Some people tell me I should be institutionalized, but I'll, <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna leave it there, Jim. I can't thank you enough for coming in, sharing your stories about Kansas City and all the yeah. great stories you have. I love it. Thank you for having me. You very are much. a wonder. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, buddy. And thank remember, you. folks. There's just something about Kansas City.